Good morning, Midland Free. Did you hear the percussion on that song? Oh, yeah. You can't see me, but I'm like backstage going, ah. That's awesome. Thank you, worship team. I uh, just want to let you know where we're at today. My name's Jeremy. This is Midland Free. Welcome here. But I also want to let you know where we're going in the next few weeks. We are uh, currently in the midst of a sermon series in the book of 1 John. It's a letter that Grandpa John, the apostle, wrote to some of his spiritual children and gives them some advice for living in their world. And it's very similar to ours, even though the time is different, the challenges are the same. So we're walking through this book. As you know, we're a church and we have a life and things ebb and flow. So in the next few weeks, what's going to happen, we'll have a couple different Sundays. Uh, The first one, this coming Sunday, is Children's Sunday. So that'll be really cool because we get to see all the little kids run around on stage. Hopefully no one's falling off and doing their thing that they do that we don't get to see every Sunday. In other words, the Gospel Project, which happens back in the children's area, we'll kind of watch them walk through that on our stage on Sunday. So that's going to be fun. Um, You're going to have a special guest speaker that week. It's going to be somebody by the name of Linton Phillips, and we'll get to hear from him. And then the following week, Pastor David's going to do... First uh, John, and then after that, I'll be back in May, and I'll do like four or five Sundays in a row. And then June 5th, which is celebrating the seniors' graduation, you'll have the seniors up on stage, and Pastor Jeff will be giving the charge to the graduating seniors and to us as well. So that's what it's going to look like, sort of rounding out the next few weeks. Got it? All right. Let me start today by telling you one of my favorite stories of uh, when my middle son, Zion, was just barely two years old. And it's so wonderful because it's completely characteristic of him. If you see him in this sanctuary, watch out because he's probably running, okay? And there's just not a lot we can do about that because this guy is all over the place and he has a great time in life. He's full of enthusiasm, energy, excitement, and joy. And he loves to share that with other people. And so one of the ways he does it sometimes is by doing stunts or tricks. Ever since he was a wee little bitty dude still in a poochy diaper bottom and everything else, he loves to do tricks. Even today, he'll ride around on his rollerblades and say, Dad, watch this, and he'll jump over something, and we'll hold our breath, and he'll get up again. So far, so good. Well, one of these tricks, when he was less than two, was that he liked to get on the arm of our sofa, like the arm of the chair or sofa, and he would jump into the cushions on the sofa. So he'd stand, and he'd just jump, you know, and sort of like belly plant, and it's got a nice spring and things that would spring him off well one day he was showing us such a stunt and we're just watching him and it's funny because you know two-year-olds they don't exactly pronounce everything just right so they're like watch out big jump coming and you have to translate that a little bit and what it means is watch out big jump coming (laughs) and so we're like okay let's see this zion you know we'll we'll roll with it whatever and he stands on the arm and he just, I mean, he's, he's got everybody's attention. He's ready to go. We're watching. And he dives off full force. But what he doesn't realize is he sort of overcompensates a little bit. And there's an arm on the other side of the couch. 
And so his face is flying like straight towards the arm and just boom, right into the arm. And this is pretty much what happens afterwards. You'll see the slides here up on the screen. This is like step one, step two, and step three. And that's Zion. <laughs> that's usually what Zion likes to do. He loves to take these great big giant jumps. But before he does so, he always gives you a warning and says, watch out, there's a big jump coming. How am I going to transition this? Are you ready? First John chapter 2, verse 18, uh, the apostle is saying something very similar to us. Saying, you're not a spot right now, and you think you're going sort of this direction, but you need to watch out because there's a big jump coming. A giant, dynamic change. All of a sudden, boom! It's radical. It seems big to you, but it's really not that far. Watch out. There's a great, big jump coming. First John chapter 2, verses 18 and following. And what you're going to see are basically three things in this. So hopefully this will uh, help your note-taking if you're a note-taker or a structure aficionado. Uh, This is the way this passage proceeds, is the structure, the warning is watch out, and then what he's going to do is this. He's going to do three things. First of all, he's going to give you sort of the warning signs or the signs of fraud. This is what you've got to watch out for. And then he's going to give you an assurance of your own authenticity. Okay, if you don't meet that description, then be encouraged. Here's what proves that you're for real here are the signs of the authenticity of your faith so watch out here's some assurance and then finally now that you know you're for real here's what you do to stay strong moving forward here's your strategy so watch out don't worry and here we go okay got it watch out don't worry here we go first john chapter 2 Verse 18. You can follow along in the Bible or you can watch on the screen. 1 John 2, 18. It says this. The first word is children. That's paidon in the Greek. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. There's the first command. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise or assurance that he made to us, eternal life. 
Now, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Now, verse 28, it says this, Now, little children, finally, this is the last command, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. Watch out. A big jump is coming. So the first thing we want to look at is this. Then we want to look at the warning signs. What are the signs of the times? What are the warning signs? Basically what the apostle is going to say is that there are wolves in, sheep clo- wolves in sheep's clothing. Yes, you all go to church. Yes, you worship God. But watch out because there might even be people in your own church who are intentionally trying to lead you astray. And if they're not in your church, they're certainly coming to your front door. And they're knocking on the door and they're saying, hey, we are good people. We do good things. We're well-dressed. We're articulate. We're intelligent. We're good-looking. We'll even mow your lawn for you. Would you like to come to our meeting? These are wolves and sheep's clothing. Now, there's a couple ways we can figure that out, and the apostle makes that pretty clear to us. The first of which is found in verses 18 and 19, and it's basically this. This is the first warning sign, okay? So you're going to get, I'm going to give you two warning signs. First thing is warning sign. The first warning sign is this, is their abandonment of the apostolic or universal church. Their abandonment of the church. Now, let me be very clear about what I mean about that because it would be easy for us who live in a highly mobile society and also, God be praised, the United States of America with a number of different options and lots of places to worship, for us to assume that our friends who either received a job or career transition and went somewhere else or people who just said, we're not going to worship here any longer are all of a sudden, whoa, they left the church. No, no, no. That's... That's not who we're talking about here. When I say the words apostolic or universal, what I'm talking about is the church worldwide. The one that Jesus started, he is the chief cornerstone, and then built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So I'm not referring to any specific denomination. I'm not referring to our local body. I'm looking at the bigger picture and saying, what happens is, John says... Those people who genuinely claim to follow Christ, if they come to you and say, hey, we found a better way, and you say, oh, cool, what church do you attend? They're like, no, no, it's not a church. It's kind of our own little thing. Bad sign. (laughs) That's a negative signal that they are no longer in the fold. They are not part of what Jesus established to redeem the world and humanity. They have left the church. That is your first sign that these people are not um, well-meaning. So, sign number one is this. Their abandonment of the apostolic church. Now, if you move a little bit further, the uh, next thing they're going to say is that their second thing is that they 
um, deny that Jesus is the promised Christ or the Savior of the world. That's verse 22. It says, you know, who is the Antichrist? But he who, or who is the liar? He who denies Jesus is the Christ. Now, for us in Christianity, um, that's kind of a term that rolls off our tongues. Jesus Christ, like that's his title. But what the apostle is saying here is when he refers to Jesus the Christ, he's saying not just that this is his last name, but instead this is a specific title given to Jesus. And what it specifically refers to is this, that Jesus is in fact the prophesied one of the Old Testament, that he is the only begotten son of the living God, that he became a human being in the flesh, that he died on the cross, went into the grave, rose and ascended into heaven where he reigns in glory. That is the Christ. That is the Jesus of Nazareth that we worship. That is a distinct and specific calling. And what happens then is when you get in conversations with people at your front door, the question will come up is, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Well, oh, yeah. Yeah, we believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. We're a Christian, you bet. Well, do you worship Jesus? Yeah, we worship him. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we're the same. No. <laughs> Nowhere close. The reality is this, is that Jesus is the only, the unique, the only begotten Son of the living God. That he's the only one worthy of worship and that he himself is totally in every way, in every attribute, in every power, in every ability, in everything, completely equal to God the Father. Other major religions will deny that. Cults will specifically deny that. And when people come to your door, you need to be very careful about the terms that you're using. I'm not even saying you have to engage them in conversation. I just want you to be aware that there are wolves trying to lead you astray. And these are some of the warning signs. They are not a part of the fold or the Christian universal apostolic church. And they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Specifically that he is the only begotten son of the living God. That is a red flag. Watch out. This is a problem. Now, let me give you a little tool or a resource that came across my desk uh, recently. Um, thank you, Mr. Wharton. This is the Word Made Flesh, a pamphlet put out by Legionnaire Ministries. That's the ministry of R.C. Sproul. And what it does is basically it takes the ancient Christian creeds and statements on the person of Christ and puts them into our language today. So what you can do is you can go through and read each one of these and if somebody can affirm all of this, there is no doubt that they are a Christian. However, I'm guessing that any of the cults that come to your door, or any other main worldly religions, actually I'm not guessing, would clearly deny this. So my advice to you would be this. I, if it were me, I'd buy 50 of these things and keep them next to my front door. And somebody comes and talks to me, and they're like, you want some information? I'll say, sure, I'll take your information if you'll take my information. <laughs> I'll read yours if you read mine. Okay, here you go, here you go. Mine's a lot shorter than yours, and it's pretty clear, actually. So I don't have to look to some imaginary people group that were supposedly in existence in North America for a long time in order to figure out what the Word says. 
This specifies very clearly who the person of Christ is. This is a great resource. This is available to you. It's very, very clear. It addresses all kinds of issues. And what's neat is, you know, some of these things that are, you know, scary to us have actually been addressed thousands of years ago in the early church. In other words, like modalism and Arianism and all these different ancient isms that are basically heresies that have popped up under other cults or world religions today. They've all been dealt with. There's nothing new under the sun. What you need to do is be able to understand what you believe today and just say, hey, I don't know everything, but I know that ain't right because it's pretty simple. I know who Jesus is. He's the Christ. And if you disagree, (laughs) we're in a different spot. So watch out, church. Even though you're not in first century um, Palestine, you are in a very similar situation. There are wolves that are intentionally trying to lead you astray about who the person of Christ is. Watch out. They are friendly. They are good-looking. They are nice. They are intelligent. They are sweet, articulate people. And they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Watch out. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, here's where your doctrine and your theology comes into play. You know, some people, I think, belittle doctrine as not practical. But the reality is, if you believe in doctrine, it drives everything you do. So, for example, the doctrine of hell. Do you believe in the doctrine of hell? Do you believe that it's real? This is a difficult teaching. Especially in our culture and in our era, we really don't want to say that somebody's going to hell. We'd much rather say they have one view, I have another, we're all entitled to our own, so let's just be friends, get along, and not worry about it. But that is not a biblical perspective. In fact, what you see is this. Many people today will say things like, well, Jesus was loving and Jesus says don't judge, therefore... We should never condemn somebody else's idea. But in fact, when you look at Jesus' actual teachings, what you find is this. Jesus talks about the doctrine of hell more than anybody else in the entire New Testament. In fact, the word hell occurs only 12 times in the New Testament, and 11 of those 12s are found on the lips of Christ himself. In other words, nobody talks about hell more than Jesus. Why? Because it's a figment of his imagination? No. Because it's a very real place and he doesn't want you to go there. And if it wasn't, why in the world would he go to the cross? Is his dad just some sadistic you know, father who wants to torture his child? There's some other way. Do you really think he would have gone that far? Why? Because hell is real. And despite the fact that we all want to say love wins and Jesus is ooey-gooey and feely and fuzzy, the reality is sin equals death and death destroys and hell is the end result. And that's a bad deal. And so here we are in the New Testament. We pursue this, this term and we come to places in John where he's like, watch out for liars, 
Watch out for Antichrist. Stay away. And we're like, woo, that sounds kind of strong. Yeah, it is. Why? Because Jesus says, whoever causes one of these piedon, these little ones, the same word you heard here in 1 John, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's what Jesus said. This is a big deal. And so there are people, yes, who are deceived, but not only are there people who are deceived, but there are people who are actually deceived and trying to deceive others. And they're in really big trouble. And Jesus says that is not a good idea. And his beloved apostle John follows up on that as well and says, guys, do not go for it. Stay away. Watch out. Wolves seeking to devour you. Watch out. Watch out. Now, let me press this in a little further because it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, okay, good, I'm not a wolf. Those people are bad. Shut my door. Done. But the doctrine of hell continues. Do you believe in the doctrine of hell? Jesus was willing to go to the cross to prevent somebody from going there. How far are you willing to go? Well, I really don't want to make somebody uncomfortable, you know? Uncomfortable? He hung naked on a hill. How comfortable do you think that was? We need to get over our commitment to comfort and raise our commitment to Christ. It is not acceptable to say, I am uncomfortable with that. Our religion is not about comfort. It is about a cross. Those are two very different things. And you cannot hide behind the fact that you think you're uncomfortable or they're uncomfortable and then bail out of your job. It is your job to go after the people who think they're so comfortable they have no reason to trust in Christ. Christianity is not about our comfort. It is about Christ's cross. When we love our own comfort... More, we have abandoned the cross. Now, I'm not saying we're mean. I'm not saying we're aggressive. I don't say we're awkward. I don't say we do something weird that makes people think we have no social skills or interpersonal you know, knowledge whatsoever. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying be weird. I'm just saying be real. And when the opportunity arises, boy, you better take it. Because there it is. And the Lord has laid it out there in front of you. Here's your chance to prevent someone else from going to hell. That's a big deal. Beware. Watch out. Jesus was the most loving person there ever was. He talked about hell more than anybody else. If we are going to be like Jesus, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable and share with people the truth that he who denies the Son does not have the Father. And the consequence of that is eternally significant. Point one, watch out. Watch out. Number two, some assurance. Some assurance and encouragement for you. Verse 20 and then verses 26 and 27 refer to something specific. They say, they say this, they say, But you, 
Since you're not a wolf, since you're not after the sheep, what are you? Verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One. You have been anointed. And then verses 26 and 27 talks about that anointing a little more. Now, that term is a little bit theologically loaded. And we talked about this a little bit at my last seminar on the Holy Spirit because there are different Christian camps that take a different position regarding what this specifically is. Within the free church, we do have a position. Now, we're careful not to speak on things that uh, we feel could be divisive, but there are some things we feel that Scripture lays out pretty clearly. And this, in fact, actually is one of them. We take a position on this that the anointing is a specific thing. We believe that the anointing, I believe, I believe the Bible teaches, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the thing that happens when you um, are born again. That's one way to say it. Or when you convert, or when you move from unbeliever to believer. And what happens is this, is prior to that conversion, you hear the Word of God, the Holy Spirit convicts you, the Holy Spirit comes to work in your life, And all of a sudden, what was dead, which was you, is regenerated and made alive. And that is done by the supernatural power and work of the Holy Spirit. He actually comes into you, changes you, and makes it possible for you to believe. Then you accept Christ and you receive a new life because you die on the cross, are buried, and raised again. And as a result, you walk in the newness of life with the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That is the anointing this is that there are several verses in the new testament which walk us through that Um, there's also i read about a dozen different commentaries on it this week and i feel really comfortable in that position but you're welcome to uh, email me if you have questions there are two except two not exceptions but unusual incidences in the book of acts where we see that people uh, believed before they receive the holy spirit Everything I read on that basically said this. There's a reason, and that is in particular because we're transitioning from the old covenant to the new, and as a result, this is a work in process. And so what you see is not just an instant change, but a phase one, phase two, phase three. And in this phase, in the book of Acts, what happens is the apostles in Jerusalem are going, the Jews are going to the Samaritans. And the idea is that if the Jews um, did not see the Holy Spirit come upon the Samaritans, the Jews who have hated them and fought with them and tried to kill them for centuries would say to themselves, I still don't think they're believers. But from the fact that the actual apostles themselves went down there and blessed these people and invited them into the Christian church, It becomes very clear that there's no longer Jew or Greek or Gentile or anything else, but we are all one in Christ. They saw this happen, and now they can affirm it themselves and go back to the believers in Jerusalem and say, this is that. So, there are two instances which this doesn't happen, but everywhere else we see that it does. So my position, I believe the position of the free church and that of Scripture, is that the anointing of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion. Now, let me explain to you what the anointing is. It's actually kind of cool. And it is this, is originally, as this idea developed, what happens is um, shepherds would anoint their sheep. 
And the reason is, is because their sheep had a bunch of bugs and, and yucky junk in the fur or the wool, and that would want to crawl up and get into their ears. And if it gets into their ears, then it can go into their brain and it kills the sheep. So the shepherds would take their oil and pour it over the sheep's head, making the wool too slick for the bugs to go in. And as a result, it protects the sheep. It keeps them alive. It guards them. It watches over them. It blesses them. And so as this agrarian people and these sheep and flock-oriented folks saw this, what happened is that anointing translates into their culture so that when a king or another important person was designated for a task, symbolically, they would anoint them. They would say, we want God's protection, God's hand to be upon you, and consequently, we're not going to use a sheep oil stuff. We're going to get some fancy oil or perfume or something that smells good, and we're going to pour a little bit of that on your head, and that is going to be symbolic of God's blessing or protection. So you see these kings being raised up for service. The first thing that happens is that they are anointed. Then the prophets grab a hold of that imagery and they say, Aha, as God is preparing someone to bless and redeem and protect his people, we will call that someone the anointed one. Because he is anointed in a very special way. He is anointed for the purpose of fulfilling scripture and prophetic fulfillment and delivering his people and becoming the Messiah, the Christ. And that is why Jesus is called the anointed one. The word Christ, Christos, means anointed one. That's why in other traditions you'll have a christening. It is an anointing. So, in other words, what happens is, this is what's so cool, is not only is Jesus the anointed one, but my nature of your relationship with him, you are anointed as well. As you come into the anointed one, you become mystically united to him, and as a result, you are are anointed as well. Now, how does that happen? Well, I don't see Jesus here anywhere, right? Via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is one with Christ, and is now in you, unites you to him, And then because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you are then anointed in Christ. You have received an anointing. Hallelujah! Right? At this point you say, praise God, because what does anointing do? Well, it protects, it blesses, it empowers. Just like those silly sheep need an anointing, I need an anointing too. There's not bugs trying to get me, but there is a lot of stuff trying to get me. I don't know about you, but I think my life is tough. It's not the way I want it all the time. It's difficult. And I need an anointing. And I have an anointing. Not that I have done to myself, but the Holy Spirit has done to me. And as I am in Christ, then that anointing watches over, protects, and blesses me. I am anointed. I am not the anointed one, but I am in the anointed one, I am in Christ. And as long as I am in Him, I'm covered. I mean that literally. By the anointing. So, the first assurance you have is this, your anointing. 1 Corinthians 
says that he who has Christ has the Spirit. We have all been baptized into him. In Ephesians, it says we are sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. You have the anointing. You have the Holy Spirit. If you believed in Jesus Christ and been born again, you have that inside of you. And that's a good, good thing. That is assurance number one. Assurance number two. Assurance number two. You have the promise of eternal life. Verse 25 says, This is the promise. You have this anointing now, and you have this promise. This is eternal life. Now, let me make something very, very clear. I hope you get this this morning. Everybody, eyes on me. One, two, three, eyes on me. Here we go. What happens is this. When we think about eternal life, we think last forever. That's what eternal life means. Eternal, long time. Eternal, long time. And in some sense, that is true. There is a quantitative difference between our present existence and our future existence in terms of duration and time. There is. But even greater than that, here is what eternal life actually means. There is a qualitative difference. Qualitative, not only quantitative. What do I mean by that? Well, my life right now. (laughs) Let's just pretend. Your life right now, I don't know. What do you experience? Well, sickness, death, my loved ones dying, I have to eat, I get tired. Life would be great if I didn't have to eat. (laughs) Then I wouldn't have to earn money. I could do whatever I want, right? But my kids keep wanting to eat, so I got to do something to take care of them. Man, if I didn't have to sleep, what a wonderful deal that would be. I could do whatever I want all the time. But I get tired, I'm weak, worn out, grumpy, you know? This is my experience with my life now. I am tired, I'm weak, I'm hungry. I have pressure all around me. I try to balance competing expectations for my time because time is an issue. I have the constant decay and deterioration of everything I own, which requires continual maintenance. I feel like I'm never getting ahead of it. I am strained in many ways. I have emotional fatigue. And no matter what, there's always something more. Right? There's always something more I could be doing or working on. That's my present existence. I don't want that to continue forever. Do you? Do you want to hunger and thirst forever? Do you want to experience sickness? Do you want to experience death? I don't want that. If that's it, then man, let's be done. Let's finish this thing and rest in peace. Who cares? I don't want to go on with that. That's no good. What do I want? I want something that's way better than that. I want something that is distinct. I don't want that to be eternal life. <laughs> you know, if that lasts forever, no way. I want something that is way better, that is qualitatively different, of another kind. I want eternal life. And when you put those things side by side, listen to this. Okay? In, in my life now, I experience death. In eternity, we have eternal life. In my life now, I have pressure 
in my occupation, in my life in the future, I want to hear, job well done. In my life now, I struggle to balance competing expectations. But in the future, I stand before the only judge who really matters. God is my judge. In my life now, I have the constant decay and deterioration of my possessions. But in the future, I'm looking for an inheritance that never fades or passes away. Where moth and dust and stuff doesn't corrupt, steal, or destroy. That sounds much better than what they're doing now. Right now, I experience sickness and weakness and fatigue. In the future, I have a resurrected body that will truly be made well. Right now, I am hungry and thirsty. In the future, I expect to never thirst again and drink from the well of living water. Right now, I am tired. In the future, I want to renew my strength and mount up and soar like on the wings of an eagle. Right now, I struggle through relationships that are filled with sin and selfishness in the future. Mine, mine as well. I, and in the future, I expect perfect unity, harmony, peace, and love. Shalom. Those are very different. And what I have now is not what I want. What I want is eternal life. That quality or kind of a different or other kind. Now, here's the encouragement. What the Bible actually says is you have eternal life. Notice that verb tense. You presently have. Current, ongoing condition. The Bible does not say that in the future you will have this. In fact, as you read throughout the book of John, his assurance is that you have eternal life. In other words, you have that now. Well, how in the world, Pastor, that blows my mind. That is crazy to think I can have that kind of life now. But as you read through the New Testament and you look at the fruit of the Spirit and the assurance and joy that it provides, what you realize that is, in fact, if you are walking with the Spirit, if you are in Christ, those become your experiences. If you are, on the other hand, focused on the here and now, then yeah, you're stuck. You're in it. And it's yucky. But if you are looking ahead and focusing on Christ and asking God for His provision, then what you can say is, Lord, help. Here I am now, stuck in the midst of this, but as I read Your Word, You assure me of the promised eternal life. Even though I'm experiencing temporal life, I want to experience Your eternal life right now. So help me, God, not just in the future, but in the presence to experience your joy, in the present to experience your fulfillment, in the present to experience your glory, in the present to experience your love, in the present to experience your abiding peace so that no matter what circumstance I'm in, any of these other circumstances pale in comparison to the goodness and glory of you. Amen? That's what we want. Eternal life. Not in the future, but now. And this is the assurance the Apostle gives you. is You have eternal life. It is your present possession now. And it can be realized. Not in a physical and tangible way. But in a spiritual, psychological, and emotional way. As you walk with Christ, you can experience eternal life now. That is a blessing. 
So, point one, warning signs. Point two, assurances. Now, point three, the strategies for remaining strong. This begins in verse 24, and I'm going to try to move kind of quick because we're running out of time. But it's basically this. It says in verse 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, you just heard the word abide three different times. Now, I want to show you the reason for that. You can't see it, but just take my word for it. This is uh, that passage diagrammed in Greek. And what the diagrams do are they show you they show you the progressive steps that the apostle is following. And basically what he says is this. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, I'll just read, if let remain in you what you heard from the beginning and then you will remain in the Father and the Son if what you heard from the beginning remains in you. This then is the promise of eternal life. So in other words, it's a step, step, step. As you listen to the message, it comes into you. It changes you. You internalize it. You realize it. You process it. You live it out. And as you do so, that is your experience of eternal life. So in other words, the simplified way to saying it is the Bible. The Bible. For these people, he says, the apostolic message, because what's happening is the Bible hasn't been completed, but they're individual letters that the churches are circulating to one another. So they get this, and he says, okay, listen, I'm going to read it. Everybody hears it. Now, let that abide in you, remain in you. And as that message abides and remains in you, that means you are abiding and remaining in Christ. In other words, basically, what he's saying is, in terms of an analogy, it's a little bit like the fertilizer in the soil. The means that you are given to grow in your spiritual life is the Word of God. This is the primary means. So as you are in the vine, if you want to grow up and be fertilized and be strengthened and become strong, the fertilizer to pour all over yourself is the Word of God. This is the food, this is the nourishment, this is the blessing that the Holy Spirit, who you have, will apply to your life. And as he massages it in, then you are built up and you grow. And consequently, then, as a result, you remain in Christ. So as the word abides in you, then you abide in Christ. That is the function of It's being carried out in this passage. So, as a result, verse uh, 28, I think, yes, is going to say, when Jesus comes, then if you're doing this, you will have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. So, summarizing the message, this is it. Here are the things you watch out for. Watch out, watch out. There's people who abandon the church and deny Christ. Bad sign. Here's some things that give you hope. Your anointing in the Holy Spirit and the promise of eternal life. Here are some things that you can do to stay strong. Stay in the Word. Apply the fertilizer. And as you do so, then you are in Christ. Jesus says in John 8, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from sin, free from death, and free to eternal life. Watch out. There's a big jump coming. It feels like a giant leap, but really it's not that far. In fact, one 19th, or 18th, 19th century pastor, J.H. Newman, says it like this. He says, history has changed its direction. It runs no longer toward the end, but instead alongside of it and on the brink of it and is at times, at all times, near that great event, which, did it run towards, it would, run, it would at once run into. Christ then is ever at our doors. Here's what he means. I'll show you a quick picture and then we'll close. This is it. Here's the picture of history before Christ. This is what people anticipated. The Messiah comes, boom, we're done. What we realized is we misunderstood God's progressive plan, the various phases. Now, here's where we're at. Second slide. Since Christ has come, this is the last hour. We're in it. It's it. We're waiting. And what's happened is when it was running, the line was running all the way to the end, all of a sudden Christ came back and now we are parallel to it. We are running right alongside the last hour. And as a result, basically what the Apostle is saying is, hey, get ready. At any moment we could step over the line. And this parallel course could go for a long time or it may be tomorrow. We don't know. But we are right up against the very edge. So watch out. Watch out. There's a big jump coming. Watch out for the wolves. Hold on to your promises and stay in the Word. Father, You're a good and gracious God. We praise You for who You are. We pray that You'd continually be at work in our lives. We see the signs all around us, Lord, and it's complicated and tricky, but in the end, our job is just to trust You. So we pray that You'd keep us safe, that You would um, deliver us from evil, both the evil that's outside trying to get us and the evil that's inside trying to consume us. Lord, deliver us from evil. For Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.